Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. No, you didn't miss anything if you were away for a week. We haven't started this book. But we want to look at a couple verses in it this morning. Philippians chapter 3. So flip to Philippians. Hard to believe it's already a new year. I know we say that every year. This time we say things like that, and I think we mean them. But still, it's, it's just hard to believe that time goes as fast as it does. It takes our earth 365 and a third days to make its journey around the sun. We call that unit a year. You'll have 70 of them if you're average. 70, 72 of them. Some of you will beat the average. You'll have more. Some of you will have less. We give a special significance to the beginning of that unit. We call it the new year. It's a time where, in a sense, it's a fresh start. Whatever the past brought, there's some new hope that we can have a brand new, fresh start. We're traveling, just like the earth is traveling around the sun. In our journey, we can stop, look back, and then look ahead. Time does march very quickly. How many more years we'll have? Impossible to say. Somebody did sort of a mark of ingenuity by taking the lifespan, the average lifespan, and putting it into a 24-hour period so that if you were to ask, what time is it in my life in a 24-hour period, this is how it translates. If you're 15 years old, the time is 10.25 a.m., if you're 20 years old, it's 11.23 a.m. If you're 30, it's 1.51 p.m. If you're 40, it's 4.08 p.m. If you're 50 years of age, the time in your life is 6.25 p.m. If you're 60, it's 8.42. If you're 70, it's 11 o'clock p.m. It puts eternity into perspective. Now, I've been thinking about my life and about this year and about the future. It's good to do that every so often. Certainly good to do it at this time of the year. This is the time we typically do that. And I've got to say, it's been a wonderful life, not to quote an old movie or a cliche, but it really has been a wonderful life. I think of the words of Paul, God has done exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or think. I have seen growth. I've seen growth around me. I've had the satisfaction of watching development of my family, my marriage, my son, my staff, all of which are better than they have ever been before. It's been satisfying in that regard. I've seen personal growth in my own life. I am amazed that I have grown into this position of leadership. And it's especially amazing to those who know me very well that I'm in this position of leadership. I can't imagine doing anything else in my life, with my life. At the same time, it's overwhelming at times. It's grown so much. That's on one hand. On the other hand, I've realized how much further I have to grow. I've realized how much I don't know about God. I don't know about God's Word. I don't know about God's ways and God's plan. I'm ignorant and in the dark regarding so much of that, and I want to grow more. I've learned some things, maybe not many, but a few. 
I've learned that pleasing God is the most important pursuit of anyone's life. If I were to sum it up, if we could hang one thing over our life as a motto, pleasing God would be it. It's also the most satisfying way to live. You can't please people all the time. So the best way to live is to please the Lord. I've also learned that loving God must be nurtured. It's not automatic. It doesn't just happen. You have to give it priority. And the only way I know to do that is you have to actually carve time out to do that. You have to write it into your day timer if need be. Taking time to nurture the relationship every day with God. Then I think about the future. What does the future hold? Here we are already one year away from a new millennium. I remember as a kid thinking, where will I be? What will I be doing when it's the year 2000? I didn't expect to even be around some of those times. But here we are. It's 1999 almost. What's going to happen? What about Y2K? What about the White House crisis? What about the international crisis? I should say, take your pick. There's something going on somewhere at any given moment. The future in that respect is uncertain. But whatever the new year holds, I know that Jesus Christ will walk me through it and be on the other end. That I am confident of. I love what Corrie ten Boom wrote. I've always loved it. She said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. You don't know what the future holds. Who cares? God knows, and God knows you, and God loves you. So entrust the unknown future into the hands of the God that you know. Whatever has happened in your life this last year, you've now got a new year. Start all over again. Fresh start. It's a great time to make a commitment. I say commitment rather than resolution. I think it's overused. New Year's resolution. Be careful of them. They can be awfully slippery, right? Awfully frustrating, can't they? You make the resolution in January. It's broken by mid-late February. Very typical. I'm going to read the Bible all the way through. I'm going to go on that diet. I'm going to lose X amount of pounds. We've all made resolutions. USA Today posted an article Robin Sharma wrote, a specialist in personal change. She said, quote, willpower alone will not allow you to keep a resolution. You need a precise action plan. Without a plan, making a resolution just because it's New Year's will mean failure for 80% of Americans. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to change, but to try to do it on your own is futile. Do it with God's direction and God's resources. And so this morning, we're going to read a section of Scripture that I think gives us an action plan in the will of God for our future. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. That I may know him, writes the Apostle Paul, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. 
Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There are four, at least four, essential truths as an action plan to face the new year with. It begins, number one, with dissatisfaction. A healthy dissatisfaction. I draw your attention to verse 12 and 13, the opening statement. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. And then in verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I don't know about you, but I find those words relieving. I'm relieved that Paul said those things. Paul, the great apostle, who at this point when he writes Philippians has walked with Christ 30 years. And after 30 years with all that he has seen and done, he says, I haven't plateaued. I haven't reached the pinnacle. I still have room to grow. I have not attained or been perfected. This is the statement of a great Christian who has refused to stay stagnant but wants to continue to grow in his walk with Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying that he's not content being a Christian, but he is saying that he is not content staying where he is as a Christian. And I think that's healthy. Have you ever met someone who has an inflated opinion of himself or herself? They act as if they've arrived. They've reached the spiritual plateau. They walk where no man has walked before. It's awfully boring to be with those people. They can't grow any further. Do you ever arrive in your relationship with God, this side of heaven? I don't think so. Is there ever a spot where you cannot grow from? Do you ever have enough of God? Have you ever woken up one day and said, God, I've had enough. I've grown enough. You are deluded if you have. In fact, there's a great story of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon from Victorian England. He said that one day he met a man who claimed to have attained sinless perfection. He was sinlessly perfect. And so he told Spurgeon that. Spurgeon said, really? And Spurgeon, in his classic style, took a pitcher of cold water and dumped it on him. See what would happen. And the man cursed Spurgeon. Spurgeon smiled and said, I thought so. (laughs) He hadn't reached perfection yet. You never arrive. Paul didn't. Moses didn't. Think of Moses. Think of what he had seen. He watched the Red Sea open up. He watched the plagues of Egypt come upon Egypt. He watched the children of Israel go through on dry land. He did it himself. A cloud and a pillar directed his steps in the wilderness. And yet, having seen all of that, He could write books. He could have gone on Christian television if it was around back then and said, I really have it wired. No, he said, oh, Lord, show me your glory. As if he hadn't seen enough already. It was still more. Now, there's an important analogy to recognize in this chapter. Paul is using language of an athlete. Some of these words in what we've just read in this paragraph comes from the Olympic Games. In fact, look in verse 13. Reaching forward is an athletic term. To stretch your body out is in a race. You're at the finish line, and so you reach your chest forward. 
Or perhaps it's the analogy of a chariot race. We don't know if it's a runner or a chariot race, but the idea of leaning forward to get the edge. One of Paul's favorite analogies, you've already noticed, if you've read the Bible with any frequency, is that of an athlete. He places the Christian on the starting line. The gun goes off. That's when you get born again. And then you pace yourself and you run. And you make it all the way through this marathon, this long-term race to the other end. We can never be content just because, hey, I'm in the race, man. Or look at my cool Nike shoes and my outfit. Looks good. I'm, it's a fashion statement, right? No, we can never just be content being in it. We've got to run and pursue to win. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And then the end of life, Paul sees as the end of a race. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy toward the end of his own life. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul was always running, always moving, always having a healthy dissatisfaction, never self-satisfied. Now, sometimes Christians can become self-satisfied in their own Christian life. They think they've hit the plateau. The reason usually is because we're busy looking around at others who are running. And usually it's human nature. We find those who aren't running as well as we are. Makes us feel good about ourselves. Well, look at I'm ahead of that guy. And so we start to stroll because after all, we think we're a little bit ahead when we're making the wrong comparison to begin with. Think how easy this would be for the Apostle Paul to do. Who was ahead of him in the race? Who, as his contemporary living with him, was beating him? No one. Look back at verse 4 of this chapter. This is uh, his resume. His pedigree is given. Verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. That's his background. That's his pedigree before he comes to Christ. What's happened then? Well... He had a vision on the road to Damascus. He saw healings at his hand. He wrote more than half the New Testament. He had a vision of heaven. If anyone could say, I have arrived, it was Paul the Apostle. But rather, he says, after 30 years, I haven't attained. I'm not perfect. Dr. M. R. D. Hahn writes this, Self-satisfaction is the death of progress. Dissatisfaction with past accomplishments is the mother of invention. The most boring people I ever meet are the ones who take up my time telling me what they have done. I would say amen when they ought to do more. And so a healthy Christian is never satisfied with his present spiritual state. Rather, it's onward and upward. There's a sign along a road at the end of an airport runway that reads... Keep moving. If you stop, you're in danger, and you're a danger to those who are flying. Keep moving. Keep going higher. As you look back over your life this last year, 
or the year before, and hopefully at the end of this next year, you should be able to see some kind of progress, not perfection, progress. A little further along in my growth, in my walk, maybe a little higher up. Great story about one of the pioneers of aviation named Handley Page. He was in his plane one day flying, and he heard a gnawing sound. One of the cables was being moved and sounded like something was gnawing it. He figured a rat was in the cockpit. And he knew that this could be curtains to have something gnaw through the cable of a crucial control cable of the aircraft. But he remembered that rodents can't stand altitude. So he pulled back on the stick, gave it more fuel, and rose higher and higher and higher till finally the gnawing stopped. He landed, sure enough, there was a dead rat in the cockpit. Higher with the Lord, onward, upward. There's always rats, right? Always things that are trying to kill the progress that God has made in your life. Don't stop. When can you stop? When is enough enough? Listen to what David writes. Psalm 17. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. When you are just like Jesus Christ, then you can stop. And I don't think that's going to be this side of heaven. I've met people who are godly, but not just exactly like Christ. All of us have room to grow until we reach heaven. So that's the first part of the action plan, a dissatisfaction, a healthy dissatisfaction. Let's look at the second one. This is a, uh, a holy discretion, I call it to keep the alliteration continuous. Verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice how selective he is, like a specialist, being able to look at a situation and see what is the most important thing And so he says, one thing I do. In 1999, learn to live a concentrated life, a focused life. There'll be a lot of things vying for your attention that you might think are worthy of pursuing. But if you evaluate the most important things, I bet you'll be able to take a lot of stuff out. I have a little booklet right to my right on my bookshelf by my desk. I like to refer to it at least once a year. Statement inside the booklet says, Our greatest danger in life is permitting the urgent things to crowd out the important. You know what that's like? Some of you have very busy schedules, urgent needs, but they're not always the most important. And to learn to say no to urgent things that aren't important is an art. It's a skill of living well. It's sort of like in many sports, you're told to keep your eye on the ball, not the club, not the bat. Or when you swing a hammer to hit a nail, not the thumb, but the head of the nail. Because whatever you aim at, you will hit. Whatever you look at. So look at the ball. Look at the one thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Because lots of things obscure vision. It's like having a window glass that can easily get fogged. On the other side of the glass is reality, is life. But if it's fogged, it becomes obscured, it becomes blurred. We don't see correctly. 
things, pursuits, hobbies, loves, relationships can sometimes obscure the glass. Helen Keller was asked, Isn't it a pity that you were born blind? And she smiled and she said, It is better to be blind and to see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. You can see with eyes and yet not have a spiritual perception. Now, I just did a little study this week as I looked at this to find out the phrase, one thing. How many times does it occur? Where does it occur? It occurs here in Philippians 3, one thing I do. But it occurs a few other places in the Gospels. You remember the time Jesus is invited over to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house for dinner and Mary's just sitting around. Some would call her lazy. Type A personality would. She's sitting down, hanging out, listening to Jesus talk. Loving it. Martha, Miss Type A, running around making the perfect meal for Jesus. Setting just perfect. And Martha eventually gets angry because Mary's just sitting around being a bum. Listening to the words of Jesus. And she complains to Jesus, tell my sister to get up and help. This is what Jesus says. You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen the better part, and it won't be taken away from her. The one thing in that situation was worship over and above service. Oh, but I want to serve God. You ought to, but you ought to worship and love him first. Service will come out of that. Then in the Gospels, there's the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said, You know what the commandments are. Don't kill, don't steal, etc. And he said arrogantly, All of these I have kept since I was a kid. (laughs) Really? Maybe we should add, Thou shalt not lie in that. That's part of the commandment too. But he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus' reply was telling. He said, one thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. For that young ruler, the one thing that was most important was undistracted commitment. He was distracted by his things in life. Then there's that beautiful psalm of David. His prayer is this, One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The one thing there was fellowship with God. So, if we learn something this year, let's learn to keep the main thing the main thing. Have you noticed how few athletes are proficient at more than one sport? I mean, some of them are. They're just great. But, okay, When you think Tiger Woods, do you think basketball? You think golf. That's the one sport he's given himself to. And so in medicine, much of it is not general practice, but specialized medicine, being good at one thing. Let's go on and look at verse 13. There's something else to face the future with, and that is direction, a hastened direction. He says, In verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I I know it sounds obvious, but you can't make progress looking back. Forget what's behind. Which direction are you going? That way. Well, then forget about what's happened in the past. Forgetting those things which are behind. In the Greek language, it's in the present tense. 
Keep on forgetting those things which are behind. And once again, this is an athletic term. This was a phrase, a descriptive phrase, used of an athlete on the track. Once he's gotten ahead of an opponent or several opponents, he was told by his coach to completely forget his opponents. Forget they exist. Because if you remember they're right behind you, you're going to start measuring steps. How far behind are they? How far ahead am I? And if you start looking back, you'll either slow down or you'll stop. You might hit a wall. Have you ever tried to drive forward looking backwards? Let's apply it. Whatever happened to you this year is over. You can't fix it. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put your past back together again. It's water under the bridge. Some of the unhappiest people I have ever met are people who live their life looking back over their shoulder. They're going ahead, but they're looking that way the whole time. Oh, if only I would have. Oh, I could have. Oh, I should have. Well, you could have, but it's over. You didn't. But you got a future ahead of you. Whenever you look back, you'll find two things. Some good, some bad, but two things. Past successes, past failures. It is dangerous to gaze at either one of those. If you gaze back at past successes, you can become proud or indifferent. Been there, done that. If you gaze back at past failures, do you ever have any other emotion other than shame? No, it's unprofitable. Sir William Osler, I don't know who he is. I just found a cool quote by him. But it makes you sound like I really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Said, the load of tomorrow added to that of yesterday and carried today makes the strongest to falter. You can't handle it. Forget it. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says forget? Does it mean have a memory lapse? That's not even possible, is it? Unless you have... Alzheimer's disease or senility, it's still in your mind. You can't get it out of your mind. And yet the Bible gives us commands, forget it. It doesn't mean have a memory lapse. It actually means don't let the past influence you now. Example, God said, and their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. Does that mean God actually has a memory lapse? No, it means that he doesn't let that influence the relationship that he wants to have with you now. He puts it out continually of his mind. And so we should do the same. Who's an example of this in the Bible? The best is Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers, becomes a prisoner in Egypt, and after many, many years, when they finally get together to see him once again, and they think, you know, Joseph is going to be torqued when he finds out that we're his brothers and he's going to remember what happened and he's going to pay back. But rather, Joseph said this to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people this day. So what did he do? He looked backwards but placed God in his memory. God was working in my life. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Then we are to reach forward in the same thought. Forgetting what's behind, reaching forward, and once again, an athletic term. Picture the athlete with the chest out as he runs across the finish line. Last night, they had that great movie on again about Eric Little, the Olympic athlete who became a missionary in China from Scotland. 
And he felt called of God to go to Scotland, but he felt called of God to become an Olympic athlete. And he had this conversation with his sister, Jenny, and he said, Jenny, I know that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And they showed him running, and he stretched his chest out so that if he ever got to the Olympics and crossed that finish line or came close, he would have the edge. Stretching forward to those things which are before you. Here's Paul the Apostle then, a 30-year-old veteran walking with Christ, not resting on his laurels, forgetting about it, but looking to the future, wanting more of Christ. It's important that you recognize he's not after perfection, but progress. I haven't been perfected. Now, if you've walked with Christ like Paul did for 30 years, if you ain't perfect yet, you ain't going to be perfect until you get to heaven. And he was not after perfection, but just keep going, keep pressing, keep moving. Some of you are perfectionists. And it's going to be very hard for you to just make progress without making perfection. But you're going to have to learn that. Because a perfectionist is somebody who takes great pains and then gives them to others. <laughs> Some of you live with perfectionists and you know what that's like. Life has to be perfect. Well, it's not perfect. Don't worry about it. You failed maybe. Keep going. Let's look at the fourth essential in our action plan for the future. And that is a hearty dedication. Verse 10. Here's the heart cry of Paul, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What's his goal, his desire, his aim? I just want to know Christ. Well, Paul, you already know him. I want to know him more. You've known him pretty intimately for 30 years. want to know him more, more power, more death to myself, more conformity into his image. The Amplified Bible is a version of the Bible that renders what we read in a more expanded version. Let me read that phrase to you that I may know him in the Amplified. My determined purpose is that I might know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. Now, I know that's a mouthful. I want to know Christ intimately, deeply, be changed by him. How do you do that? It takes determination. Look at verse 14. I press. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That one word, press, describes dedication and devotion. It's the same word used back in verse 12. I follow after. It's the same word used back in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. I pressed the church. Now, I want you to get this. The fact that Paul uses the same word, if we were to compare sentences, he's saying this. Before I was a Christian, I worked hard. I put lots of energy into my life as a sinner. And now that I am a believer, I put the same kind of energy in my passion and pursuit in serving Christ. What would happen if the same amount of energy that we spent before we were Christians, we spent after we were Christians? I've, I've met many sinners who are very good sinners. They're experts. They've got it honed. It's a fine art. They could give classes. They pursue their sin with a passion. They want to fulfill themselves. 
if once they become converted, they put the same kind of energy in their passion for the lost and serving Christ. Wow. Maybe let's make it a little bit more applicable to us. If we put the same amount of energy and passion into serving and loving Christ as we do in our hobbies and fashion and golf and whatever else, television, would it make a difference? And so we evaluate this last year. We look back, some good, some bad. It's past. We have a brand new future ahead of us. Maybe this last year was a failure for you, a disaster. Maybe you're thinking, thanks for even bringing it up, Skip. I think that even in the will of God, the failures can be good. Thomas Edison was 67 years old in 1914 when his laboratory in New Jersey burnt to the ground. Every project he'd been working on was destroyed. The next day, he starts walking through the rubble, and he said something you wouldn't expect. He said, There is great value in disaster. All of our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can start anew, he said. Good perspective. Good inventions destroyed, but lots of mistakes are made before you get there. They're all gone. You perhaps have failed this last year. Dreams, hopes shattered. Relationships perhaps even ruined or on the way. You can have a brand new start. You can take this spot and you can say, God, I'm yours. I'm after your purpose, your plan. I want to make progress. Whatever you do, don't stop. Don't stagnate. Don't put your life in cruise control. Bad place to live. Onward, upward. I was once driving through Switzerland years ago. I was looking at all the little mountain peaks. Excuse me, large mountain peaks. They look like little ones when you're far away. And I was just looking at them thinking, how many people have climbed that one? Or did they make it to the top of that one? I wonder if anybody died trying to reach the top of that one. In Switzerland, there is a church cemetery at the base of one of those peaks. In the cemetery, it is said there is a mountain climber who died trying to reach the ascent. Never made it. There's a gravestone over where he's buried. has his name, date of birth, date that he died, and one simple epitaph. He died climbing. Instead of, he didn't make it, he died climbing. He tried. He kept going. I would pray that that would be said of us this year. Not he died, but he was climbing. But you know what? Let's get a dose of reality. We have a church of about 10,000 people that attend. Somebody's not going to make it to the end of the year. Those are the odds. In the next few months, someone will die. I want it said whenever I go. He died climbing. He kept going. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that these words would be true of us, that we would be reaching forward, pressing for the prize. We have a very limited amount of time in this thing we call life. Even if we live to the average or we beat the odds and live longer, still in the scope of things, a very, very short time. 
And there are many things vying for our pursuit. And it's very easy, especially in this country, to be distracted. And so, Lord, we we call upon you. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to make frequent reminders in our minds, our hearts this year of who we are, where we're going, where we've come from, so that there would be this holy restlessness, this dissatisfaction that would drive us on. And then, Lord, help us to narrow our focus down to the one thing, the main thing in life, and to keep our eyes on that, to forget what's behind, to face the future and press toward the goal. In Jesus' name, amen.